Hello, and welcome back to The Indie, a podcast from the Santa Barbara Independent giving you what's happening in Santa Barbara. I'm here with Delaney Smith, associate news editor at The Independent, to discuss her cover story on The Promise, a Santa Barbara City College Foundation initiative that is helping more students enroll in higher education. Hi, Delaney. Hey, how's it going? So, Delaney, we know The Promise offers financial support, but there's actually much more to it. Could you tell me a bit about it, some of the requirements and their purpose? Yeah, so The Promise is really unique. Obviously, there's there's hundreds of Promise programs across the U.S., but ours is really set up to have the least amount of barriers to get in. So just to be eligible, all you have to do is finish high school um, in the community college district. It doesn't matter if you're private school. It doesn't matter if you're homeschooled or you got your GED, um, doesn't matter what your GPA was, you just have to graduate or get through high school. And you have to enroll in the Promise as a full-time student. Um, You have to go to an academic counselor at least once per semester. It's really low stakes so that anyone can join. Another really different thing about the Promise is, is that there's no financial barrier. You can have the money already to go to school or not. The Promise gives anyone the resources to get through regardless of their income. So what is the retention rate for the Promise and how do they actually gauge their success levels for students who are a part of it? The retention rate is a little bit hard to track and and this is why. The Promise funds for two full years at City College, but oftentimes a student might join and they're doing their full-time two years and maybe a year into it they switch majors or something they're going to eventually age out of the Promise program those two years, but they're still going to be a City College student completing their degree or transferring. So it's hard to actually keep track and use that as a a measurement of how successful the Promise program is. Um, What's an easier kind of metric to look at is the GPA of students. Students in the Promise, they just have to remain in good academic standing. They're not required to go above and beyond. But more than half of of current Promise students are actually getting a 3.0 or higher. And so that's a better metric to look at. One aspect I'm really interested in asking about is the meeting with a counselor requirement. How has this affected the trajectory of the students that you spoke to who were a part of the program? Yeah, so... That's one requirement that I was talking to Jeff Green, the CEO of the Santa Barbara Foundation, and he said that first they were thinking that might be a barrier for some students, but they they included it because after all of his research, and he had done hundreds of interviews, he found that students tend to be the most successful if they are in contact with an academic counselor, at least just once per semester, and that's the requirement. And for example, one student who I did talk to, it shaped her entire trajectory. She went into college not knowing what she was doing, just knowing she needed to be there. And it was through the academic counselor that she found out, oh, okay, this is kind of the pathway I want to go down. And she's now getting her bachelor's in sociology as a result of that first academic counselor session. You also spoke with some of the people who actually fund The Promise. Now, why are they so passionate about this initiative? What led them to want to be a part of this program? Oh, the donors. Yeah. Well, Santa Barbara is so unique. I mean, we are a community of philanthropists and why give to The Promise as as opposed to something else? Um, The donors that I talk to, it's the comprehensiveness. It's the fact that it's not just tuition, it's books, it's fees, it's everything. A student can go to college and not have to spend a dime. Um, and that is so rare and so unique that um, our, our community is willing to give back to that. 
Now, among the students who were part of the promise and benefited from this program, what was your take on how much this meant to them? This meant everything to them. And like I said, for some families, they might not have necessarily needed the promise financially because it's open to anyone. But for the families who do, for the people who are low income, they didn't know how else they were going to go to college. This this totally changed their lives. They they knew they wanted to go, but they they were going to have to get loans and be in debt. And as a result, um, you know, one student I talked to, um, he didn't have to pay a dime his whole time through City College, and and he could save his money up. And now he's in LA going to school, hasn't had to spend any, hasn't had to take out a student loan because he saved all that money up. At its inception in 2016, the promise came into the spotlight nationally when it was recognized by Dr. Jill Biden, now First Lady, and applauded for its effort to reduce barriers to financial support. So what does this mean for other foundations who want to mimic this model, this format, prioritizing not only financial need, but also fairly reasonable academic requirements? A lot of foundations would like to imitate our model. And and Jeff Green has said that he's been approached by community colleges all over about that. Um, But one thing we do have that I mentioned earlier that um, many communities just don't have is that we have these philanthropists that are are willing to give and make this a totally community-based initiative. And and you just can't necessarily do that in other communities, whether they want to imitate it or not. Well, thank you so much, Delaney Smith, for speaking with me about The Promise. I really enjoyed our talk. Thank you. Now over to news. This past summer, 3,100 pounds of meth worth around $10 million were discovered by SB City officials as a part of a major drug running mission. I'm here with Tyler Hayden, senior editor of The Independent, discussing how the small scale operation turned into one of the biggest drug busts in Santa Barbara County history. So Tyler, what was the process by which these groups were able to move drugs across the border so quietly? Yeah, so Ponga boats loaded with drugs from Mexico or Central America have been coming up the U.S. West Coast for for many, many years, Um, but it's really increased in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years. And this particular Ponga was loaded with, as you said, a little over 3,100 pounds of meth, which when it was seized at the time, it was one of the biggest drug busts, not only in Santa Barbara County history, if not the biggest, but the nation's history. I mean, it was a massive amount of of drugs. And so what these Ponga operations typically do is they're small-ish boats with a low profile stacked with a few very powerful engines, and they're able to motor pretty far out into the Pacific. They try to go at least five miles out to get past local and Coast Guard officials so that only the Navy has jurisdiction over the waters that they're in. And then they spend days powering up the, the coast. In this case, these guys were, were apparently in their Ponga boat. It was six people total. And they were in their, uh, their craft for 10 days straight, taking turns sleeping, filling the, the engines with gas, and doing what they could to stay undetected. So they apparently zipped straight from a small fishing village in Sinaloa, uh, straight to Arroyo Cometa Beach, which is on the Santa Barbara coastline. And our local officials, as well as regional and, and national officials, including the FBI and Homeland Security, they somehow got a bead on these guys and knew when and where they were going to land and were waiting when they did. And were able to seize uh, many, many bales of, of meth and then arrested the six guys on the boat and then another 28 who arrived by car 
to to load the the drugs into their cars and take them to Riverside when where they were then going to be distributed around the country. So how did the cartels convince these fishermen to do this work for them? It doesn't seem like it was a normal operation. Yes. So apparently it was in some ways. And I think that's a a misconception amongst a lot of people, myself included. I thought that when these Ponga boats were were landing here in Santa Barbara, that they were typically operated by, you know, seasoned hardcore cartel members who have done this many times before. In this case, and what I've learned from speaking to some of the defense attorneys in the case, as well as a, an expert down in, in UC San Diego, a scholar on Latin America human rights issues. A lot of these guys are, are basically forced labor. They're either approached by cartel members in their hometowns, um, and, and this happens a lot, apparently, in, in Sinaloa and small fishing villages. The cartel members approach these fishermen who they know can handle themselves on a boat and basically threaten them and say, you're going to take this load for us at this time, or we're going to kill your family. We're going to, we're going to kill your daughter. We're going to kill your wife. And we know from many years of, of the drug war down in Mexico, these guys aren't exaggerating when they say that. And these are small communities and, and everyone knows the other. So it wouldn't be hard for a cartel member to get to these guys' families. So um, that is one situation that, that happens often. Uh, sometimes these guys instead of being absolutely forced into it, they do it semi-willingly and that they know they're going to be transporting something illegal up the coast past the border, but they oftentimes don't know what they're transporting. In this specific incident, one of the guys thought that it was marijuana in the bales, which is obviously still illegal and something that U.S. law enforcement would want to stop, but he claimed in his testimony that he wouldn't have done it if he did, if he had known it was it was meth with all the increased criminal enhancements that comes with that. So it's it's a lot more of a, a complex and nuanced dynamic with who these guys are and why they did what they did. You know, it, whether it was completely not by choice or they were forced into it by economic circumstances, they're so impoverished and desperate for money. A lot of the fishing fleets down there um, have no work because the fisheries have been depleted. They've sort of fallen behind, you know, a lot of the globalization trends over the years economically and, and in the fishing industry. None of this is to suggest that they should be allowed to, <laughs> to import 3,100 pounds of meth into the U.S. I think law enforcement did an incredible job of stopping these guys. But um, when it comes to the criminal prosecution of the individuals, that's when it gets a little more complicated. And I think it's, it's important to understand the bigger picture. So now the case is making its way through the courts, but why is this coming up again now? Yeah, it's interesting. So when this happened in August, we wrote a little bit about it. Other papers and media in town reported on it, but it really kind of flew under the radar in a lot of ways because we were in the throes of the pandemic. It was right during the summer surge. It was right before schools were supposed to reopen and then were all of a sudden not going to. So people were very preoccupied with COVID and the pandemic. And this just kind of was barely a, a blip on the radar. And uh, we, we happened to be reporting on it now because I had sort of slowly kept track of the case as it worked its way through the court system. And a lot of the main guys in the boat, um, actually all the, the main boat crew, they were uh, sentenced recently, each of them to six years in prison. And the captain 
is facing six to 14 years when he's sentenced in the coming weeks. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me about this. It seems like a burgeoning human rights issue more than a drug issue in many ways. But once again, this was Tyler Hayden speaking to me about his piece on the recent drug bust in Santa Barbara. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you. In a city as self-conscious about aesthetics as Santa Barbara, public art attracts a lot of attention. Whether the conversation is about Bud Bottomsdolphin family sculpture at the foot of Stern's Wharf or Herbert Bayer's chromatic gate in Arco Circle at Cabrillo Park, everybody seems to have an opinion. The latest addition to our city's expanding cast of Instagrammable public artworks is Nurture Our Mother, an Earth Day-themed mural by artists Adriana Ariaga and Claudia Borfiga that was finished on April 24th. It's viewable from the rooftop parking lot at the Paseo Nuevo, and it comes with a remarkable level of community acceptance that was baked into the process. The Indies executive arts editor Charles Donnellan has this report. In a year when Santa Barbara's traditional Earth Day celebration in the sunken garden at the courthouse had to go virtual, Adriana Ariaga and Claudia Borfiga have found a way to channel some of that community energy and to provide a safe outdoor resource for all of us that will continue to be available for months to come. Their design, executed in bold colors and arranged in a giant syncopated grid of 12 large images, reflects their partnership and their belief that the theme of this year's Earth Day celebration, climate leadership, is a shared responsibility. Chosen by a panel of experts from a call for proposals issued last year, Ariaga and Borfiga bring their own expertise in the formulation of socially conscious collaborative art practices to this project. Here, Adriana Ariaga talks about this in terms of the way the artist brought friends and family into the work. I think it was really important to have our friends and family be a part of this because they get to really understand the work that we do and and we get to emphasize that we need everyone to be part of this process. I think most importantly, we really understood each other and I think it just further emphasizes like each of us are having an important role, right? In this mural, but at the same time, each and uh, each living creature has an important role in the ecosystem. So we have like the plants and we have the toads and the poppies to, you know, the butterflies and us, the kelp. And I think this, the way we laid out the imagery is, is on a grid and and it's very, you know, uniform, but I think it emphasizes unity um, and that, you know, if one is missing, it's going to look off, right? And so I think it just kind of further um, helps us emphasize that we, we're, we're all part of this ecosystem. We all have our role. We have to make sure that we, we do our part because no one is more important than the other. We all need each other. It's easy to see the camaraderie that has developed between the two. I absolutely agree. <laughs> you, you said that beautifully there, that yeah, nothing is more important than the other. Um, and then we have like these human elements that we put in, like the mother and the baby and these hands, adult hands giving to um, these, this child's hands and how whatever we do to the earth in this time, we're going to pass on to the next generation. And so if we... Um, make a mess of it or we leave nothing left for other people then we're gonna have nothing left to give them so uh yeah touching on that like what what we do now matters tomorrow matters today the two artists are from different backgrounds ariaga grew up in santa barbara and attended college and art school in california while borfiga is a british artist whose 
socially conscious approach to screen printing has roots in London's Brixton neighborhood. Together, they exemplify the new way that younger artists are looking at the project of civic engagement. So this was kind of a dream collaboration and project. Um, Neither Adriana or I had worked on this scale before. um, And we also, neither of us had painted a mural before, although we'd worked on other pieces. Um, And so it was a dream project to come together and especially for it to happen in Santa Barbara because there are challenges around putting public art here. And we're both part of a group called Friends of Public Art who really want to see more of that happening. and so we're super grateful for the MCA and Say Nuevo and all the partners for, you know, having the initiative to make this happen here. And we really want to see more of this in the future, um, making art super accessible by just putting it in the places that people are so that they don't have to go out and seek it. Um, it's just presented to them. No mural project in 2021 would be complete without a strategy for social media. And Nurture Our Mother is no exception. But I know one of the things that we also want to encourage people to do is, you know, to to use this as a backdrop for like social media and sharing it even, you know, with an even larger art audience. And I think that's the great thing about exploring these contemporary tools is that we don't have to just have this mural here at San Nuevo. It could be, you know, sh- seen from Germany or, or, you know, another another country or another city. And it was funny because while we were, you know, working on this, we saw that happen where someone was like, hey, can I take a picture? You know, can we use this as a backdrop? And we're like, sure, but, you know, don't post it until after it's revealed. Whether it's reflected in the collaborative process that brought this work into the world or in the open-ended way in which social media amplifies and personalizes its message, the main thing is that Nurture Our Mother follows the principles of environmental awareness celebrated by Earth Day. As Ariaga puts it, The earth doesn't belong to us. Our role is to protect it. Thank you so much to Charles Donnellan for that wonderful feature on the recent mural project in downtown Santa Barbara. Another big thank you to Delaney Smith and Tyler Hayden for speaking to me about their pieces as well. You can find all of the articles online at www.independent.com. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of The Indie. See you next week for another episode.